You're listening to The Blind, Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, escaping microstakes. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? I'm doing good this week, BJ. The weather's changed up here. I'm looking forward to spending a little more time outside in the woods and uh, going for some long walks with my wife. How are you doing this week? I'm doing really good. I am exhausted. I've had a busy week. I went up to New York to visit family, and while we were there, my father and I are buying a house. We put in an offer to get him moved closer to family. So we're going through a lot of the paperwork, a lot of the loan origination documents, bank statements. There's a ton of paperwork you need when you buy a house. And I'm helping him along that journey. I'm kind of like his project manager in buying this house. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great experience to have him back down here. He's excited. I'm excited. And he's definitely thankful that I'm around to help him with this process. That wasn't the most exhausting part. And this is going to sound like a first world problem. I played 99 holes of golf in four days. A few 18-hole rounds, a couple 27-hole rounds. I'm too old for this, dude. I still swing like I'm in my 30s or my upper 20s. I'm in my mid-40s now. I can't swing like a 1,000 miles per hour and expect my body to hold up. Like most things that you've recognized in my life, I need to practice a little bit of moderation. I need to figure out how to change my swing to fit my 40-plus-year-old body and still enjoy the game, which gets to expectation management, which is something that we've talked about over and over, both in life and in poker. You're happiest when you have little to no expectations. And one thing people expect when they play poker is that they're going to win, they're going to make more money, they're going to move up stakes, they're going to win there, they're going to keep moving up stakes until they become a high roller, but many people still fail to escape the microstakes. And that's the topic of this week's podcast. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. There's this expectation when people start to play poker that they're going to win consistently. That's probably the first expectation that they're going to find disappointment with. They expect to move up in stakes, and the majority of them are. And that'll be the next expectation that they get to find disappointment with. Most players find themselves stuck at micro stakes and low stakes. Micros are online. They're, for our definition, they're anything that's 50 NL or less. So one, two live plays very much like online micros. So we're going to be talking a little bit about one, two live also. We're going to combine both of them into this episode. To put a little bit more context behind why we're equating micro stakes to one, two live, if you play micro stakes online, you can multi-table and you also get dealt way more hands than you do in live poker. Live poker, you might get dealt 20, 25, 30 hands an hour. In online poker, you could easily get dealt 100 hands per hour. So even though the blind levels are lower, because you are putting in so much more volume, it equates to something more like 1-2. Yeah, and it's even deeper than that. Another reason why we equate 1-2 to micro stakes online is that the behavior in the psyche is very similar. You're going to have a mass of bad players at micro stakes and at 1-2. When we talk about 50 NL, what we mean is $50 is 100 big blinds at that level. So if you hear somebody say 10 NL, well, $10 is 100 big blinds, and that's $0.05, cent, $0.10 cent poker, and that's why they're called the micros. You can play so cheaply, and that's true if you're playing one table. If you're playing six tables or eight tables, 
there's some things that are going to take on a magnified effect. If you're playing that many tables, that many hands, every mistake that you make consistently becomes very magnified very quickly. How do we escape the micros? Thing is, we're battling some obstacles, and I don't think they're readily apparent to most average players trying to escape those micro stakes. One reason people don't escape the micro stakes is simply that they don't know how or when. They're stuck in the micro stakes by their own design. They probably could move up, they're just afraid to, or they're not sufficiently rolled to. So, two things they could do is one, shot take, and two, build up your bankroll or your budget so that you can play those higher stakes. One of the benefits of shot taking is that you can test the waters. You're playing 10 and L and you want to try 25 and L, or you're playing 1-3 and you want to try 2-5. Well, if you just had a session where you won three buy-ins, why not take those buy-ins and parlay it up to the higher stakes, test it out, see how it goes. If you find out that the competition is not as hard as you feared, you might be a contender. I was stuck at 1-2 and 1-3 for the longest time. I didn't move up to 2-5 until I took a shot, played 2-5, and realized, you know what? The average 2-5 player isn't really that much better than the average 1-3 player. They just have deeper pockets. So you need to be able to withstand the variance, withstand the bankroll, and play that. I would not have moved up if I had never confronted my fear of what moving up looked like. And many of us are a victim of our own fear. We are afraid that the higher stakes are filled with sharks and we're going to get our butt handed to us. And it simply isn't the case. In many instances, fear is just expectations that are not realized except in our own heads. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that people have a psychological block to moving up. And that's what fear is. It's a psychological block. It paralyzes us from doing the things we need to to move forward with our lives. And in this case, our poker career. What level of buy-ins do you need before you start shot taking? This is going to be a very personal thing. For some players, 20 buy-ins for the next level, not the level you're at. 20 buy-ins for the next level might be a good time to move up if you feel like you have a huge skill advantage. I think that's a better shot-taking amount. Some people, it's going to be 40 big blinds before they move up. Some people, they'll never be enough because that fear will keep them stuck where they are. Even if you get over the fear of playing the higher stakes, you will still always have to combat rake. Rake is another aspect of why people get stuck at the lower stakes. This part of the podcast might be chock full of some math, but bear with us here because we're going to go through some numbers. Here's the bottom line. The rake as a percentage of the pots is so much larger at the lower stakes than it is at the higher stakes, and it behooves you to get over that cap as quickly as possible so you decrease the effect of that rake. Yeah. So when BJ mentions cap, what he's talking about is most live games, at least in the United States, there'll be a cap on the amount of rake. So if you get into like a one-two game and it's got a 10% rake and it's capped at $5, maybe you're throwing another $2 in towards promotion. So you're going to take $7 out of every pot that you get up to $50. Let's back up a minute. Let's give a couple examples of just how that's going to work. If we take a one-two game, 10% rake, capped at five with $2 for promotion. If we have a pot of 40 big blinds or $80, we only get to win $73 of that if we win that pot. We have lost 8.75% of that pot to the rake. That's a huge amount to lose to the rake. It behooves us to take and look for games with less rake or, or move up. 
to where the rakes are less percentage. And a perfect example of that is if we take the same scenario in, in a 2-5 game, the same 10% rake, it's capped at $5 and it has a $2 promotion. We still have 40 big blinds, but now that 40 big blind pot is worth $200 and we get to win 193 of it. We've only lost 0.35% to the rate. And that's such a huge difference. So the percentage that it plays on the pot, there's a couple of things that could be said here. Some people could say, well, in, in my casino, they don't have the same cap for 2.5. The cap's bigger. All right. But I know the cap doesn't normally go above $10. So if you even do it with $12 out of it, you're still winning $188 out of that pot when you win. And it's still only 0.6 loss to the rake as opposed to 8%, which is so huge. And to even get the analogy to an online poker experience, if you're playing 10 NL and you're winning a 40 big blind stack, you might still pay 3% in rake. So compare the 3% in rake to 10 NL to the 8.75% in 1-2 to the less than 1% in 2-5. And you can see how it's better rake-wise if you play higher stakes, because it's so much easier to get above that cap. Fighting the rake is yet another example of why you should not limp. This is a revisit of limping as a sin, and this is huge. If you play a pot by limping, you are not playing aggressively enough to where you're going to overcome the rake, you're not going to get above that cap, and your winnings will be frittered away by paying that rake. Whenever you limp, you're likely going to lose the hand because you're playing a marginal hand anyway. Why you limping to begin with? But even if you do win a hand with your marginal limping strategy, how much do you think you're going to win? You're probably not going to win a pot big enough to overcome the effect of the rake. This is why aggressive poker is more winning poker and why folding is also winning poker because you're preventing yourself from buying into it and paying that rake. I think that one of the things a lot of people don't understand is every time you limp, you are paying a portion of the rake. Whether you win or lose, you're paying a portion of the rate. You don't want to be limping hands because you never get above that cap. And here, to make a point, we have that same 10%. We have the $50 pot in a 1-2 game, and we know that 10% goes to rake, but it's capped at 5 If the pot's only $50, we, we lost 10%. But if that same game, the pot is $100, well, now instead of losing 10% to rake, you only lost 5% to rake. And that's what we're trying to say when we say we want to get above that cap. We want to be get above where that cap affects the pot. It means when we're playing in these lower stakes games, whether it be online in micros or live at 1-2 or 1-3, we want to play hands that we can play aggressively. Then we're going to end up finding ourselves playing a little tighter because of the effect of rake on the game. In that situation, we're absolutely going to want to play more often with hands that we can play faster, play a little harder, and oh, by the way, drive the SPR down hands that we're more than happy to get in with, or that we can at least still play aggressively post-flop and be able to pick up a lot of hands post-flop and get above where that rake is. And that's one of the problems with online. When you go into the micros, sometimes there's no cap. Sometimes that 3% that they're choosing, yeah, hey, the rake is less. Yay, the rake is less. That's great if they cap it. But if they don't cap it, you're paying that 3%, whether the pot is $10 or $100, you're still paying 3% to Drake. This podcast might sound like it's turning into a cast on how to beat the rake. It really isn't, except that beating the rake is part of escaping the micro stakes. And the rake is that silent killer that no one talks about, 
and very few people actually even think about. They just pay the rake as a function of ensuring a clean, safe, friendly game, paying the dealer's salary, you know, commercialism, whatever. But the rake is killing you, and a lot of people don't even talk about it. Probably the last thing we can do to fight the rake is if you are playing online, find a site that has a lower rake structure or that has rake back, which might be joining a club with some friends or a sponsor, and you get a part of that rake returned back to you every week, every two weeks, at some frequency. And rake back will help you combat the rake. But really the whole thing we're talking about here is just beating the rake as a means of escaping the micros. And you really want to escape the micros because you don't want to pay that rake anymore. Get out of that. Yeah, absolutely. The next problem that keeps people stuck in the, in the micro stakes or in, in lower stakes is variance. The thought process here might be why. I mean, there's variance at every level, and this is true. But the thing is, you're going to be dealing with a lot more bad players at lower stakes. These players are the players that are going to be playing more bad hands, and you're going to have more opportunities to experience negative variance. Because they're going to take chances with hands that if you were at higher stakes, you're just not going to see that often. There's not going to be as many bad players. It adds to our variance. How do we deal with that? Part of the solution here is part of the solution for the last one. You play a little tighter when you're playing against these players. And not necessarily pre-flop. You might be finding yourself playing tighter when they face you with aggression post-flop because a lot of these players are going to play very passively unless they have something. It's going to be hard, even with the best hand-reading skills, to put someone an 8-4 off. So here you are playing ace-king suited, it's good hand, and the flop comes ace-king-8. And you bet, and they stay in with bottom pair. The turn is a 4, and now they have 2 pair, and you're thinking the 4 is a pretty good card. You would never put them an 8-4. So even the best hand-reading skills might still get you in trouble and losing pots because they're playing really bad hands. This isn't necessarily a fault of your ability to hand-read. You probably should never have expected them to play 8-4 off anyway. The fact they did is just a bad situation and you're losing money. You need to be properly rolled to handle all this. The more bankroll you have and the more volume you put in, the better position you'll be to withstand the variance and come out on the other side successful. Because for every one, two, or three times that you get smacked with the wrong side of the deck playing 8-4, as long as you're playing a well-constructed range with solid poker fundamentals, and as long as you're not sucking more than your opponents, you're going to win more money in the long run. Unfortunately, the long run takes time. Yeah, and I think that we expect there to be more opportunities for variance at lower stakes. The goal here is to minimize the effects of negative variance and maximize the effect of positive variance. We need to be able to think on every street why the actions that are happening are happening. We can't just say, well, I had aces pre-flop, so I'm going to keep hammering no matter what. We need to be able to look at that board texture. We need to be able to interpret the actions of our opponent and determine whether or not that strong hand pre-flop is still strong. Strong pre-flop does not equal strong post-flop. So to that end, one of the solutions we have is hand-reading skills. If you can get better at hand-reading, you'll be more likely to put your opponents on likely ranges and then figure out if you're ahead or behind, and to what extent you are ahead or behind, and then make your bets or your calls or your raises appropriately. Even the perfect hand-reading ability might not catch the bad players playing 8-4 offsuit, 
but you will minimize the variance on the negative side and maybe maximize it on the positive side. Another solution that we see often at the microstakes and the one-two levels is not to pay people off when they shove on the river. At the microstakes and at one-two, players almost never bluff shove the river. If they're making big bets on the river, it's because they have nutted or near-nutted hands, and you need to think carefully before making that call. All too often, we lose a lot of money making those calls when we shouldn't. And a great thing to do is, if you're doing online poker, look at a Poker Tracker 4 database, look at your collection of hands, and filter them to see how many times you make calls on the river and how much your win rate is in those spots. If you're playing live poker, record your hand histories using something like Poker Bankroll Tracker or a notepad app on your phone or just pen and paper. Write down these spots, talk about them with your friends, and see if you played them well. Chances are, if you made a call when someone shoved on the river, you were probably behind. Yeah. I, I want to address something before somebody somebody in their head right now is listening to this and they're telling themselves, no, no, they, they bluff when they shove on the river. I had this guy like last week that, yeah, stop it. Stop it. They don't bluff enough on the river. If you don't have a super strong hand and your opponent at lower stakes is, is shoving on the river, you can probably let your hand go and do so comfortably and profitably. Consider it an exploitative bolt. If you want to pay more attention when you're playing online poker, play fewer tables. Maybe go down to one table. I know playing one table might be boring in online poker. If you play fewer tables, your attention will be divided less and less. So focus on that one table and you might find out that you are reducing the variance you experience because you're focusing more. And better focus leads to better poker. Yeah, I think that goes to another problem with trying to escape the micros. It might be that you're just not that good at poker. That doesn't mean you have to stay that way. But and you may not even be aware because poker is one of those games where you can do everything wrong and get rewarded for a period of time. And then there's a period of time where you could do everything right and lose constantly. It's not one of those things that you can look at and necessarily determine just on the results. You have to look at the process. Eventually, if your process is flawed, you're going to start to fail consistently. You're going to lose more than you win. It's not something that is really there that the game causes. It's not necessarily being at lower stakes that causes this problem, but it is the natural variance of the game that does create this thing in our head. So one of the ways to escape the micros is to actually take a step back and ask yourself honestly, how good am I? Do I need to do something to improve? Do I need to start studying? If you don't study, you're not that good of a player, you know, so, so start studying. Do I need to converse with a coach and have a coach take a look at it and see if my process is flawed? Poker is one of those difficult subjects to study and improve because the arrow of causation isn't as linear and direct as other things. You know the joke, I go to the doctor, hey doc, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, don't do that. Done. There you go. You might be losing and not really sure why. You need to find out what your leaks are and then take steps to plug those leaks. First of all, it's not that easy to concretely put your finger on what your leaks are. That takes some effort, that takes some investigation and conversation and feedback and an openness to learn what you're doing. Once you find out what your leaks are, then you need to figure out how to plug those leaks. And the ways in which you can plug the leaks are many and varied and not every option might work for you. Third, 
you need to figure out whether the steps you're taking to plug those leaks actually are working. And that's like a feedback loop to find out, hey, is my play improving based on the changes I'm making? And because it's not easy to see that causation so directly, this is a lot of work. And it's a lot of work most players aren't willing to put in. And that's why most players are stuck at the lower stakes. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to take a moment because you, you said something and, and it struck me so funny. You talked about, hey, doc, when I do this, it hurts. Don't do that. But if the doc is a doctor of poker, you're going to go to the doctor and say, hey, I shoved preflop with aces and I lost. And the doctor's going to tell you, keep shoving with aces. So it is so very different. It's so very different. One of the things that I don't think we've mentioned yet is one of the best ways to escape the micros is to skip them all together. Just skip them all together. The thing is, I don't really mean that. I think that people are going to want to play 1-2. They're going to want to play 10 and L to maintain their skills. But what I'm talking about is rather than thinking, I'm going to win at these games, at these levels to build up my bankroll, maybe pick up an extra shift and add that extra shift to your bankroll or just a budget plan where I'm going to put this much aside into a bankroll until I can play 2-5, until I can play 50 NL and up and have the buy-ins to do it and do it, you know, safely, because it's really hard to escape the micros. If you do everything right, you may still struggle for a couple of years at the micros trying to build a bankroll. And the reason for that is, is that we play a game of variance. You might be one of those people that got really lucky and you were on an upswing and you escaped the micros, you escaped them really quick and you're playing 100 NL, you're playing 200 NL, you're not the norm. If you're listening to this and that happened to you, you're not the norm. Believe me, it's not because your skill is superior. It might have something to do with it, but there are people who have superior skill that are still struggling. And it might be mismanagement of bankroll. It might be any number of reasons that have prevented them from moving up. So we've covered a lot in this episode, and I want to recap the problem is escaping the microstakes, really kind of moving up in stakes, and the solutions are many. The solutions involve being cognizant of the rake structure and doing your best to thwart or combat that rake structure. Get over that cap as quickly as possible so the rake minimizes the amount that you lose to rake with your winnings. You want to play a style that minimizes the negative side of the variance, increases the positive side of the variance, keeping that rake structure in mind. You want to have bankroll management or a budget management somehow to Get yourself to a point where you can escape the microstakes, maybe just by bypassing them, and then use those microstakes as a sandbox to study and do focus sessions and actually practice what you're learning. And that last part, actually learn things. Try to figure out where your leaks are. Try to plug those leaks. Try to use the microstakes as a format to practice what you're learning to, to shore up those leaks and talk to your friends, your poker community, your coaches about what you're doing to find out if you really are a winning player. And if you're not, take the steps to become a winning player. Anecdotes are not evidence. If you tell someone, I'm winning because this happened last week or this happened last month, that is different than having a database of hands that you could look at and say, look, over the past 10,000 hands, I've won 15 big blinds per hour. That's a lot better than saying, oh, look, I think I'm a winner because I say so, trust me. If you're playing online, you really need something to track your hands. It's one of the best ways you can get better is to track your hands and after a session, go back and pick out some hands to review. That's how you're going to get better. You can run those through Flopzilla. 
You can run them through GTO Plus. You can discuss them as hand histories with a group of other poker players. Right now, everybody's got a free Discord. It's not even like it's hard to find a group of poker players to talk with. Solve for Why has a free Discord. Believe Red Chip Poker has a free Discord. So you have a way to be a part of those communities, even without buying into the site. If you're playing live, you want a poker bankroll tracker so that you can actually track your wins and losses and actually see what your true hourly is exactly how many hands you're playing because here's the thing live players never get it live players never get it a hundred hands is not a lot of hands a thousand hands is not a lot of hands those are like really small sample size you don't start to really get to see what you're really doing play-wise until you get around 200 to 500,000 hands you need to track those hands now you can start to get an idea and you can start to see patterns long before that the more hands the more accurate it's going to be all right. Sounds good, though. Do you have anything else to add to this topic? I think we covered it, and hopefully we have given our listeners the tools they need to get out of the microstakes and start playing some real meaningful poker. Yeah, I hope so. I hope this is going to help people make a lot of money. And then they, in turn, can give us one big blind per month. That's right. Support the show. One big blind per month is all we ask. This has been really great, BJ. Thanks. Thank you. And until next week, stick to the plan, and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours.